Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein A Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. We are going to give you an hour of science today, and we've got some really good stuff coming up. Uh, Dr. Ewan, good morning. Good morning. We're going to talk about bushfires later and ecology. Looking forward to it. And all things... Um, all well, things crispy and burnt. I, I almost <laughs> said that, and I caught myself because it seemed a bit inappropriate. Dr. Ailey, speaking of uh, climate. I um, thought you were going to say, speaking of crispy and burnt. <laughs> well, that's that a sad was reality. Yesterday, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. If the shoe fits. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you. But speaking of crispy and burnt, Chris KP, good wow. morning. Good heavens. I was going to say, hey, where, where, where do I fit in this spectrum? I must say that I'm pleased uh, that, uh, that Dr. Ewan has. Uh, Altered the bar for appropriateness. I think that's great because uh, <laughs> I'm always looking for a new, a new, uh, new dimension to that. Yeah, and the bottom, the bottom level that we sink to is usually set by you. So oh, it's, it's no, probably nice plenty more underneath that. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> Indeed. Oh, boy. And uh, Liv's doing our Twitter feed, of course, uh, as she has been doing for I don't know a decade. Liv, yeah. I think a, a decade. Wow. Twitter's yeah. been around for a decade. Wow. No, but Liv has. We didn't oh, know right. what to do when she first came in. She Liv, was just sitting Liv there. started Twitter. <laughs> typing, typing. <laughs> Journal, <laughs> <laughs> Just randomly doing nothing. Anyway, it's uh, it's always important. Liv tweets everything that goes on in the studio, especially during the breaks, which yeah. I don't like because I sometimes have to. Anyway, let's uh, get into some news. Uh, Dr. Ewan, what do you got for us? Uh, does anyone know about the marshmallow test? Yes. In the microwave? What's we're the microwave marshmallows marshmallows in, test? Oh, if you put, oh, oh, if you put marshmallows in the microwave, you can work out where the um, the nodes are due to the microwave frequencies. Oh, it's kind of cool. Oh, See, we've been doing some microwave experiments recently with plasma. We've put two grapes together and oh, you yeah. get plasma, mm. which is yeah. – I haven't done it for too long because I'm worried my microwave will blow up. That's but, cool. But my son's obsessed with it. So that's yeah, another experiment. So hey, which marshmallow test are you talking about? So I'm the marshmallow about- test is basically where you give a child you know, a marshmallow oh, yeah, and then if you yeah. say, if you don't eat this, you'll get more. Oh, right. yeah, yeah, right. So right. it's like yeah, delayed yeah. gratification and, mm. and being able to sort of, you know, think ahead. Yeah, like grants and researchers. Mm. Kind of. Mm. Kind of. <laughs> you, never get as much, you never get as much as a marshmallow. Yeah, if we don't give you this grant, maybe we'll give you more later. Keep coming back <laughs> keep and trying. Hanging. You never yeah, get keep it. trying. Keep That's trying. Right. So, in a sense, they've done the same with cuttlefish uh, and they've shown <laughs> with not grants. I'm talking Giving about cuttlefish to kids. <laughs> <laughs> Do the kids ask for more cuttlefish? <laughs> cuttlefish are pretty cool. As a kid, I would love to have a cuttlefish. I thought you were going to say tasty, but... Well, they are they tasty are. if you want to eat them. But um, cuttlefish are amazing and they're, they're pretty intelligent critters. Uh, so obviously in the same group as things like obviously octopus and squid as yep. well. But they've... So cuttlefish uh, in this experiment are basically fed uh, crab daily, in fact, five times a day. And they eat their crab. But it turns out that they really like shrimp. Hmm. And so they did this experiment where they, um, after five days, they then started giving some of the cuttlefish uh, shrimp at, uh, at in the evening and the others, it was random. So they might have got shrimp, they might have just got crab again. And the ones that were given shrimp consistently actually down... Um, 
So reduce their consumption of crab in anticipation, presumably, of the shrimp. Don't fill up on the crab. Shrimp is their favourite. They love shrimp. They just go mad for shrimp. And they reversed the treatment as well. So they did this again for the other group and did the same thing. And so the group that was, like, really unsure about, am I going to get crab? Am I going to get it shrimp? Mm. They just pretty much continued eating as they would normally eat. Right. But the ones that thought, well, hang on, I'm getting shrimp tonight. I'm not going to eat any any much crab. I'm going to, like, reduce that so I can eat a lot more shrimp. They did the same thing, so they reversed as well. So this is kind of the first time it's been shown in, in invertebrate, I think. Um, this kind of behaviour has been shown, in, you know, with kids with the marshmallow test, um, crows, ravens, primates, so intelligent animals. So is this, is this evidence that there is no such thing as a dessert stomach? Because <laughs> <laughs> I've always thought there was. Oh, there is, well, Chris. I think that's been proven categorically. Okay. Maybe, 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 maybe cephalopods, you know, cuttlefish and so forth, maybe they think that shrimp is kind of their dessert, though. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's kind of that's like, you know, that's the sweet stuff, right? So Hold this is off. pretty cool. I mean... We should all have respect for these animals Please anyway because cuttlefish and octopus, like, they're super cool on a whole range oh, yeah. of levels. But this is just another, I guess, um, illustration of, of the fact that they, these things can think in a pretty sophisticated yeah. way. Um, yeah. It also it's all, it goes on my list of things where humans previously were like, only humans do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. that list, is there anything left on that list beyond screwing the planet? Well, the tool thing's pretty cool as well. So, you know yeah. how like, humans used to think we were special because yeah, we no, used no, tools? No, 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 no. Have you seen the thing recently with hawks? It was published where yeah. hawks are picking yes. up six on fire and yeah. dropping them. Yeah. And it turns out Aboriginal people said, well, they've been doing that for thousands of years. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. Yeah. We're, yeah, we're not that special. Yeah, there's not much that we can do. We're not that special. That, uh, they can't do. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Yeah. find me something and generally I'll be able to pick an animal that can do it. Yeah. Even funerals. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, indeed. I think elephants. Cro- uh, is it elephants. Or, yeah, there's a few that do. Elephants kind of have a ritualistic thing as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Not as elaborate as ours, I guess no. you could say. Yeah. No, there's no music. There's no PowerPoint present. I don't know. We don't have any. We don't <laughs> have any <laughs> elephants at ours. <laughs> Usually, <laughs> uh, I think we probably just said a few feelings. Mm. Uh, Dr. Ailey, what do you got for us? Well, so I've got something for your your Sunday morning. I, I want you guys to imagine that you're on a a fishing trawler in the middle of the, the North Atlantic Ocean, oh, cool. right? Are we fishing? We're in the middle of a disaster movie here, everybody. Perfect storm, right? All right, exactly. Excellent. We're in the middle of a disaster movie. We've got, you know, choppy seas, big waves, you know, everything's coming over the deck. You know, you've got your captain screaming at you, pull the mast up, whatever. I don't know. I'm okay. not on boats. So Chris KP's driving. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we're going anyway, We're going down. You know, and like in a disaster movie, then all of a sudden, you know, you hear this rumble and... Out of the distance, this giant wave that's like five Mm. times as high as any other wave comes across, smashes across the bow of the boat, and that's it. Everything sinks and, you know, it's not cool. Not cool. These things are called rogue waves, Mm. right? We always thought that they were something just in disaster movies. Yeah, I've seen the Poseidon Adventure. That's right, exactly, until back in 1995 when one was actually observed for the first time. And this was uh, in, uh, I think it was off the coast of Norway somewhere, one of the oil rigs actually had this special laser that measured uh, wave heights and, you know, choppy seas up there all the time, 11-metre waves, nothing to laugh at. I wouldn't want to come across an 11-metre yeah, no, wave. Yeah, and all of a sudden this 26-metre behemoth Whoa. was measured. That's frightening. Right? It is frightening. And so all of a sudden for the first time we realised, hang on, rogue waves are a real <laughs> thing. But they're super rare, they're super unpredictable. But there was a paper that was published, uh, was published back in December, but we've been off for the summer, so uh, in uh, <laughs> Physics Reviews X, which basically talked about uh, forecasting these rogue waves because nobody really knows how they work. So one theory is that it's just kind of lots of different waves kind of 
adding on to mm, each other. Right. This is the, so what we call the linear theory. Exactly. Yeah. Constructive interference, yeah. we call it. Yeah. So, um, and that kind of works, but you never get quite as big. Mm. Uh, and then there's this other, what they call nonlinear theory, where they think some energy from other parts of the system is coming in and building this wave up. Anyway, regardless of what causes it, we've never kind of known how um, often they occur and, and things like that. So what these researchers did, basically, mathematicians are here to save the day. So what they did, they used this obscure probability theory um, that's basically used uh, in quantum physics and they looked at uh, waves in a tank. They made all these different setups of waves in a tank. Regardless of how these waves formed, they saw rogue waves, whether it was linearly added or whether it was this nonlinear thing, um, and they worked out that using this uh, probability kind of method they could come up with a really accurate representation of the likelihood of a rogue wave in this tank environment. Now, it doesn't necessarily work in the wider environment because they're so rare we have to, you know, that's kind of the next step is looking at the ocean. But it's really cool because nobody's ever thought, you know, and Mm. they worked out not only that, they worked out that the initial setup of the waves, if they could basically take a picture always made a rogue wave. But the question is, how do you get that initial setup? Was it, yeah. How's the, was it so. equally as rare in the tank? Yes. Okay. Yes. Mm. So it was, but, it was, it was mean, guaranteed. Yes. That well, conditions. yes, but it's not, yeah. It's, yeah. it is rare, but yes. it's just that they're not observed either because yeah, sure. they come and go really quickly. Yeah. You know, yeah. one might form. So over. how far away was it from the, um, from the oil tanker in Norway? It went underneath it. Because I'm just thinking, when you first observe it, you know, it's yeah, off yeah, the yeah. chart. Well, no, but it could have built. That's the thing. These yeah. things kind of come and go over the matter of minutes. Uh, so, yeah. Heavy anyway. stuff. Yes. I'm having the flashback to Leslie Nielsen. <laughs> yes. He was the captain of Poseidon before he got hit by the rogue wave. I was thinking George Clooney. Which until I was about yeah, 22, I, I thought Clooney. was a tidal wave. Anyway, you learn. You learn. Chris KP, what do you got? Uh well, so for those of you who are into their, um, uh, you know, previously known as planets, um, you may be aware that on Pluto there's a uh, there's an area which is often referred to as the heart. Mm. It's, I think it's actually the, the Tombaugh Regio is the official. It's lucky it's that way up. That's all I'm well, saying. Well, this is my thing. So I have always thought that. I'm like, there is no up and down in space. Mm. This is a butt. It's a butt. Okay. It's an ass <laughs> on Pluto. <laughs> and I'm fine with that. Uh, I have no issue hey, with that at all. And yeah. it's appropriately shaped. I mean, a heart doesn't have that shape. Anyway, precisely. Yeah. At least at least looks like a butt. Yeah, I agree. So so let's call it the butt. So there's a there's there's a butt on uh, on Pluto. Turns out <laughs> that beyond just being you know an interesting shape, it's actually very useful. It's actually it's covered in very very thick, like you know over a kilometre thick solid nitrogen. If you said fine hair, it would have freaked out. <laughs> <laughs> Wish I'd thought of it. Maybe you it is. Maybe Australian it's Australian. a long way away. It's hard to see. Maybe you it never is. Know. I don't, I'm not yeah. going to write that off. Um, anyway, so what happens is it's. It turns out that it's not just a big fat, you know, icy butt on the on the planet, X planet, um, planetoid, mini planet. It's. It actually does stuff. So during the day, the surface of the ass um, warms up uh, and it it vaporizes. Uh, which means it's actually releasing particles into this very thin atmosphere that exists uh, around Pluto. And and that's fine, except, of course, that means that there's now more particles. And within that, the, the, the nitrogen particles, there's also bits of ice, there's bits of dust, there's actually heat that's coming off mm, there with it. Outgassing. It's outgassing, <laughs> as you would expect. Yep. Um, but, of course, at night time, the opposite happens. So it actually solidifies again and it reduces the... So what this does... So it's it's essentially... 
it's almost like a uh, like a like lungs. It's it's pumping out and breathing back in, uh, and it's driving all the way. And so what you end up, it's actually it's actually called retro rotation, which is difficult to say in a hurry uh, or when drinking. Um, so I recommend that you should discuss Good this when drinking. Retro rotation. <laughs> mm. Oh, oh yes, oh yes, I do like that. Yes, very nice. Um, you can actually you can see some of this. You can see some of the effects of the winds uh, on Pluto if you've got the right uh, telescope. It's hard to see from here. Um, uh, yeah, so basically, it's not just a uh, a big fat thing on the planet. It actually is driving the atmosphere and the winds, which can be quite fierce around Pluto, even mm. though it's quite a thin atmosphere. It's fascinating stuff. Pluto is fascinating. It is. It is. <laughs> people were well. You know, Go on, people say were it. going. No, they, were, they were going on about how you know it's just a frozen block oh, of yes. ice and, yeah. and it's it's amazing like it's amazing it's one of the most dynamic yeah. objects in the solar system i'm not sure i'll cool. ever imagine pluto the same after that segment chris no I'm, one will. my work here is done <laughs> no one no one will imagine pluto the same but just before we do i just wanted to say a quick word about coronavirus it's got nothing to do with race people just uh, popping that out there. And this is a great opportunity, a great opportunity for every university in this country to really make all of the students from China who pay for the rest of us to get an education, mm-hmm. frankly, and half of our bloody research feel like really valued members of our education here, community. Here, here. Yep. And I'm not seeing a lot of that at the moment from a few universities, yes, but not seeing a lot. And I think it's time we really step up because sooner or later, uh, China's not going to need us because they're building many, Correct. many of their own universities and they're going to turn around and say, bugger off. And it's going to cause us a lot of problems. So this is the point where we get to show some care. Triple R. In the studio with us now is Dr. Orla Feeney. She's from the Monash Institute of Pharmaceutical Sciences at Monash University. Orla, welcome to the studio. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you in. Now, uh, we, we sort of, I guess we interact a bit on Twitter. That's how I, I found you. Yeah. And, uh, but you, you've moved here relatively recently. Uh, not that recently. Oh, five years? <laughs> Try more. Oh, um, really? Yeah, yeah. I'm here eight years. Eight years. Yeah. Now, before coming here, though, you worked in more the sort of innovation sector as opposed to the research sector. Is that right? Uh, Commercial? Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah, industry. So I was working in R&D in two pharma companies in Dublin before I moved over here. Right. So. Yeah, cool. Now, at MIPS, as people call it, yep. I, I'm not big on that acronym. Monash Institute of Pharmaceutical Sciences sounds better. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, I'll, I'll wow. tell the director. Tell him, tell him. Yeah. Uh, oh, no, MIPS, it sounds like you did something wrong. Um, it's, it's a, it's, I hate acronyms. Every, everything gets shortened in Australia and, and it doesn't really tell you what, what people do. Um, but you're working on some really interesting strategies around how to get drugs to various parts of the body. Can Before we get on to those particular strategies, can you tell us when someone takes a drug for, say, say I need to take a drug for pain in a certain location, I mean, what's the philosophy behind that? They just soak the whole body in that drug and hope some of it gets to the right place? Is that... Yeah, and actually, I don't know if you remember, um, some of the larger pharma companies got in a little bit of trouble for, you know, the targeted neurofen right? thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because mm. you take a tablet, it goes across your gut wall, yep. that enters your systemic circulation, your blood system, and it goes everywhere. Yeah. But it'll also go to where your pain is and it'll treat the pain. So that kind of targeting is a little bit of a misnomer. So in that instance, it's it's basically you're just getting stuff into the blood and yeah. getting it to work everywhere. And that's typically what would happen with any drug that's given IV. Yep. 
that goes straight into your circulatory system and it disperses all over the body. So mm. the approach we're trying to take is controlling where things go and trying to manipulate where drugs can be delivered. And, and presumably there's certain parts of the body that are, that are hard to get to. I mean, the, 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 the brain in particular, are there other, other parts of the body that are specifically hard to get drugs to? Um, anywhere where there's a really kind of tight barrier, so it's called an epithelial barrier, or so I think um, lungs are quite difficult to mm -hmm. get to. It, certain organs that don't have a whole lot of blood perfusion, so the bladder, certain types of cancers in those places are right. very difficult to get to. Pancreas, lungs, bladder cancers. Yeah. So there's a yeah, there's plenty of places we can't get to too easily. The brain is probably the biggest of the lot. The biggest so, lot. Yeah. And I know in, in the case of cancer, like often the drugs are quite damaging to the rest of the body. So you really need them to go to the location. And, yes. Yeah. So you don't want to saturate the whole body with the you know chemotherapy is in that, that bucket. Yes. Absolutely. And actually, we work specifically on that. One of the we've got a really really good team working on targeting um, nanoparticles to cancers. So in those instances, they've got a really specific. Um, protein on the mm -hmm. surface of a particle and it only can stick at the tumour site where there's a receptor for that mm. particle. So, so talk us through this process because the, the idea of targeting, I think people have this idea that somehow someone's there with a remote control or something and yes. you know, um, driving them around, which that would be cool. Mm. Um, but but we're talking about chemical targeting here. I mean, how do you specifically make a drug go to one location in the body? Yeah, so, and, and that's where targeting, again, is a misnomer. So uh, I prefer to use an analogy of Velcro. Mm, um, okay. So we've, yep. got, we've got the Velcro hooks and the Velcro loops are actually on the tumour. So if you put a hook on your particle, it'll stick better. So it's better sticking, better retention rather than better targeting because targeting implies it's a kind of, you know, predetermined destination. It's not. It's going everywhere in the blood. It's going to disseminate all over the body, but it will stick where you want it to stick rather than um, going to like other organs where you don't want it to be taken up so, as much. So does that mean that you're limited in terms of where you can send these drugs? Because I would assume that there are some parts of the body where you might want to send the drugs that aren't differentiated much in that way from other parts of the body. So like if I didn't have a specific, you know, stickiness or, mm -hmm. you know, type of hook, if yep. you will, um, in that part of the body, if that, that appeared in most of the body, then it'd be harder to target. Absolutely. And, and that's, there's cases of folate targeting, things like that. So that's expressed all over the body. Right. So it's not the best thing, but cancer is massively overexpressed. Okay. So if it's a huge difference in where that hook can be, then obviously you'll get better targeting. So it's still worth the shot. Um, in other instances, it's specifically only on a cancer cell. So mm. it's, it's a bit mm. more specificity there. But again, it depends on what you're looking at. HER2 and Herceptin on breast cancer, that's one of the most classic right. kind of targeting Hmm. strategies. Interesting. Um, this, this may sound silly, and I, I like the Velcro metaphor, and it's cool, um, the idea that if you're in the wrong spot, it doesn't matter how good your Velcro is, it's not sticking. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not doing anything. So once this once this drug has been introduced into the system, so some of it you know, ends up at the right spot and some doesn't, of the stuff that doesn't, is mm -hmm. there any chance it's going to cycle back around? So in some cases, yes. In other cases, your liver does a fantastic job of getting rid of everything. And if it doesn't get passed out by the liver, it'll go through the spleen. And if it's small enough, it goes through the kidneys. But mm, okay. specifically what we do, particularly in our group, we're trying to engineer either proteins or particles so they can keep getting a second pass through the blood. Um, and one of those strategies that we use is we use a thing called lymphatic targeting. So we'll deliver drugs subcutaneously in the skin. 
And what happens there is they tend to go through the lymphatic system first, Ah, hits lymph nodes or wherever you need to. If you've got a disease that's in the lymph nodes, a metastatic cancer or some sort of lymph-based disease, it'll go through there first and then hit systemic circulation and then it it gets passed through all the other organs. So like snake venom. (laughs) <laughs> but good snake quite. venom. Um, yeah, I'm not going to take that analogy. Thanks. <laughs> you can keep that one. Uh, well, <laughs> Your marketing people would love it. <laughs> Nicely rejected. <laughs> wow. God. Well, well uh, uh, I, I just remembered that years ago I did some work when I was um, still in my research lab with the Monash Institute of Pharmaceutical Sciences, and we were looking at the, um, the ability... geniuses at Monash. Oh, yeah. geniuses. Yeah. Um, and I don't know why they were working with me at Melbourne, but uh, we were. <laughs> Across the road, but we um, we were looking at the size of particles for inhalants and the ability to get them to go into the lung but not get stuck in the throat. And there was yep. very specific criteria around sizes. I'm wondering with this sort of you know targeting of, of drugs that you're talking about. I mean, how crucial is the size element, and in particular with things like the brain? You know, can can you, you you've talked about the stickiness and and, mm-hmm. and that aspect, but how much of it is size? Um, I feel like you've done homework or something. This is really weird. No, I'm just remembering something from 20 years ago, which is bizarre. crucial, Um, particularly for, so extravasation, getting out of the blood, um, the size of things really. Sorry, what was that term? Extravasation. First time you you heard it first, folks. I haven't heard that term before. So that's to get out of the bloodstream. Yeah, so extra out of and vascular system, so extravasation. Cool. Um, But anyway, yeah, so to get out of the blood, uh, bigger things tend to take longer to get out of the blood vessels because there are gaps in blood vessels in healthy tissue as well, because that's how we get our nutrients. Yep. So if you have particles that are particularly big, they'll probably only keep kind of cruising around your blood and not really getting into the mm. tissues. If you have things that are very, very small, they'll get out really easily, but then they get um, filtered by the kidneys. So those things get excreted incredibly quickly. And then the Goldilocks phase is kind of between, I think, anything from five or six nanometers up to 200 nanometers mm-hmm. before you start inducing immune recognition reactions as well. Yeah, right. So size is a huge thing. Yeah, and five huge. or six, five or six, huge thing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, five or six nanometers though, I mean, we're only talking a few tens of atoms at that point, aren't we? This is really nice, you know, design stuff. I mean, five or six nanometers is small. Yeah, no, that's probably too small. That's on the cusp of getting filtered through the kidneys. Yeah. Most of the particles we work with are about 10, 10 nanometers upwards. Okay. Um, we collaborate with a company in Melbourne, a drug delivery company, and they're pretty awesome at making really nicely mm. characterized small particles. Um, a couple of the commercial nanoparticles on the market are na- liposomes, so they're right. about 120 nanometers okay. in size as well. So yeah, and, size and is on, on the commercial side, I mean, that was going to be my last question really, was how clinically used are these sort of techniques at the moment, especially in cancer? Is this a sort of a standard treatment at this point that you're sort of working on and optimizing or is it still a little way off? It's a little way off. I think there are some things out there. So... Yep. There are liposomal formulations out there for cancer for chemotherapeutics. The whole point of them is to basically stop the free drug from hitting every organ going. So yeah. that's why they encapsulate them. Um, so there's a liposomal doxorubicin formulation that's been used the world over. That's probably the most well-known one. Um, there are plenty more in pipelines around mm-hmm. the world, including with Star Pharma here in Melbourne. Um, yep. But it's something that needs a lot more work there's not really an easy way to predict how these things behave. So you kind of have to take physical chemical characteristics of how their surface looks really carefully with 
the physiology of the individual or whatever system you're testing as well. So it's there's a lot of yeah. different factors in the mix. <clears throat> yeah. Oh, look, it's fascinating stuff. And I think the um, the nanotechnology approach to to some of this is really interesting, really taking into account the physical parameters of things as well as just the operation of the drug and, and so forth. So, Ola, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us today. It's great to talk about the work being done there and um, good luck with uh, this in the future. Thanks. My pleasure. Dr. Ola Feeney is from the Monash Institute for Pharmaceutical Sciences at Monash University. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. We have another guest in the studio now. She has been in the show before because um, was part of our 20 PhDs in 20 minutes craziness last year, which Chris KP was here for. But in, the, in the studio is Dina Abade. She is from the department, or she was from the Department of Psychology and Counseling, is still from the Department of Psychology and Counseling in the College of Science, Health and Engineering at La Trobe University. Dina, welcome back. Thank you so much. Good to be back. Look, it's, it's great talking to you and having more than 60 seconds to do it in. <laughs> I, I mean, how did you find that last year? It was oh, a bit freaky, wasn't it? That was crazy because it was literally putting five years of work and what, like 250 pages into 60 seconds. <laughs> so it was a little bit crazy, but it was really fun. I had heaps of fun. It was good to, yeah, summarize yeah. my... PhD in 60 seconds. Yeah. It was uh, the thing that I found amazing was how all of you formed a bit of a cohort. Like oh, you're yeah. all still interacting and sharing each other's stuff on Twitter and and there seemed to be a few friendships there. Which yeah, I actually um I met a few people on the day that we still keep in touch now every now and then, like we chat via Twitter or whatever. It's really nice yeah. to have that. Um and yeah, it's nice to see what they're getting up to and what they're doing. And actually yeah. I actually work with one of the girls who I met here now doing my post. Oh, right. so yeah. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, that's really cool. Well, um, we are going to do it again, folks, in a couple of months' Ooh. time. Yeah, just a little preview there. I'm going to put some stuff up on Twitter and somehow uh, get Chris KP to answer my emails when I eventually put out the request and get so many people emailing me. No, nah, no chance. <laughs> I don't even answer my emails. Oh, thanks, Bill. Uh, now, you are working in sort of uh, the whole area of our aging brains and how our cognition changes and so forth. Mm-hmm. Can you give us a bit of a rundown? What What is considered healthy aging with regards to our brain? Because you know, I'm still of the mindset that we should all be dead by age 30. We evolved <laughs> to die by age 30 once we're bred. And all of a sudden now, because of modern medicine, clean water, et cetera, we're living to, you know, in Kirk Douglas's case, 103. Mm. Um, so our, our minds are different now. Like our requirements are different. So what mm. what's healthy aging in terms of cognition? That's a very, very interesting question. And it's one that I spent many years trying to kind of um, unravel, but healthy aging actually. So if I had to summarize, there is not one definition of what healthy aging is. So for example, if you're looking at um, cognitive processes in um, a healthy older cohort versus a clinical cohort, for example, stroke, a lot of the healthy aging cohort actually have underlying conditions, for example, Mm -hmm. um, say um, high blood pressure or um, uh, psychiatric uh, disorders, whether it be uh, uh, depression or anxiety. And this stuff actually affects cognition. And even though it's not explicitly tested, um, they're healthy in the sense that they don't have, um, they're not a stroke population or they don't have the condition in our experimental group, but um, they're still considered um, a healthy cohort. Now, um, in my case, because I investigated healthy 
populations. I started asking myself the same question. Well, what is a healthy population? Is it someone who just hasn't incurred a brain um, mm. a brain injury or is it just a population that yeah, doesn't have a stroke or any sort of neurological infarct? And if that's the case, then healthy aging really, really varies from person to person. So, and from cohort to cohort. Mm. So, um, <laughs> I can't answer that it's in hard. one sentence. It's really, really hard, and, yeah. And when we say cognition, I mean, what, I always think of that as, you know, your capacity to think effectively. But what's, mm. what's I'm sure there's a good definition of that. <laughs> uh, again, that's, an, that's a really complex one as well. So cognition, you couldn't, it, you can't, uh, I guess, test it with one thing or one mm-hmm. one test. So if we think about cognition, it's really, really complex. And yeah, like you said, it's the way the way we understand and respond to information. Um, and you, it, so it's things like um, our ability to pay attention, to concentrate on things, whether it be for a short period of time or a long period of time. Um, memory, it can include language skills, the way we respond to information, um, things like that. Now, it's so, it's so complex and so intertwined um, that it's it's can't be tested with one mm. thing, and that's basically what I spent my entire PhD on. Trying to work out what yeah. the, how to test <laughs> it. Yeah. To, yeah. So so on that, I guess I mean it makes total sense to me that everyone's an individual, and you're going to have your own mm-hmm. you know versions of whatever. But if there is uh, aging, and there and there's I guess there's the acceptable um, changes, and then there's the ones that you might be more worried about. Yeah. How might, and there's either way, there's a trend here. So how might I be able to go, yeah, yeah, I'm on track, it's okay, or no, I'm really not, before something disastrous happens? Interesting. So um, firstly, I don't want anyone to worry <laughs> um, and you shouldn't overthink about, oh, am I, is, am I on the healthy ageing path or the not so healthy ageing path? I shouldn't no. this. Okay. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, so I guess, I guess when it starts to become, and this is just from a neuroscientific perspective yeah. and as a human being, <laughs> so those intertwined. That's all I am. <laughs> um, if, uh, if, if nothing's really impairing your everyday life and yep. you're not feeling like, damn, I'm forgetting to um, forgetting my friends' names or <laughs> forgetting to take uh, yeah my medication <laughs> every day, like is that healthy aging? Like that that's mm. then that's okay. But then when when it starts becoming something like, oh wow, this is this area of my ability to think is impairing, you know, me working effectively in my workplace, then it could become an issue. In saying that. Um, I, I worked with a healthy cohort that was quite um, active in the community and that also made a difference too. Whether people are still engaging in fun things in their everyday life, that impacted their cognitive ability. So they, in fact, um, performed much better than, I guess, a population of their same age and same health status, um, so to speak, uh, that weren't engaging in that in those fun it's activities. Interesting, isn't it? It, yeah. it, does, it does in a lot of ways, seem, it sounds like it mirrors you know, physical aging. The bottom well, was like, yeah, I'm not going to mm-hmm. do the same stuff now that I did in my 20s. It's, yeah. just, it's not a thing, but it, I'm, I don't feel like I'm you know, unhealthy. That's <laughs> the whole point. I mean, one of the things I find fascinating with this is why there, and maybe there is, and I don't know about it, why there isn't more of a push for me versus me. So how 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 is my cognition today relative to what it was before? And when is that problematic? So as an example... I will forget your name three minutes after you leave the <laughs> studio. My memory for names is really not as good as it once was. But my son came home from, from high school the other day and needed some help with his maths. And I ripped out some differential equation stuff like it was, you know, no problem whatsoever, like a god, yeah. right? But I know that parts of my cognition are going down. You like that? Wow. You like that? Yeah. That's good. Is that what he said? Uh, <laughs> but, you know, relative to me, it's like, what? so what is worrying? Like, how do I know what is worrying? I mean, this seems to be something we haven't quite 
sorted out? That is also a really good question because when we have, uh, I guess, in the neuroscientific literature at the moment, and particularly some in some neuropsychological literature, um, what we find is that uh, populations, when we're testing their cognition, we're comparing them against people who are not like them in any other way. Yeah, so they've yeah. gone to school for far, far longer, they've lived a relatively stress-free life, for example, and they're being compared to people who didn't have that upbringing mm. and who didn't go to school or didn't complete tertiary education. Yep. And so compared to them, yeah, absolutely, it looks like they're declining in some areas of cognition when if we compared them to how they were before, um, at this individual, not so bad, it's maybe. not so bad. Yeah. yeah. And so um, what we're, what I also tried to concentrate on in my PhD is using a young population that was relatively similar to the older population. So mm. I used a cohort that was still engaging in, ter- in some sort of vocational education and my younger population was still enrolled at university. Right. So obviously like we like. can't get... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's an important aspect too. Now, before you go, the other thing we've got to touch on is this issue of perception of time yeah. and how that changes because we know even just at any stage in our life, our perception of time shifts greatly. Yeah. When I'm sitting in front of a crappy film, it feels like years. You know, when I'm sitting in front of the new Star Trek Picard series, it's seconds. You know, but, but this changes as we go along, right? I mean, and what, what does that mean in terms of our cognition and our mental state? So that's a, that was a really fun aspect of my research. So I actually studied time estimation for a little bit. And um, what, I, what I wanted to, um, I guess, find out was whether older people estimate time differently to younger people. And there's some literature to suggest that older people um, underestimate time and younger people don't. Do they, they estimate time more accurately? Right. And um, people with uh, stroke or other brain injuries underestimate time. Um, so what I did in my research was um, I... I let participants engage in a task that was really easy. So they had to identify cartoon faces. And every time they saw the same cartoon face, I would press a button. Now, um, at the end of that task, I asked them, how long do you think that task took? So I had an older and younger population and I expected older people to um, underestimate time and younger people to accurately Mm. estimate time. So the task took 85 seconds. Now, what I found was both groups underestimate time substantially. So they estimated the task took about 45 seconds when it took like 85 seconds. And I thought, why is this happening? This is not... Yeah, first of all, you'd think they were both equally bored (laughs) and would have have gone the other way. Actually, I thought they were having fun, Shane. So the same concept as time flies when you're having fun. So just to put it in perspective, the tasks that preceded this task were really difficult. So they were challenging tasks and stuff. And so it's kind of like, here's a fun task. Also, how long Mm. did you think that took? And they were like, oh, 40 seconds, 30 seconds, if that. Um, And so it's this concept of, um, again, time flies when you're having fun. But again, it's not generic across everybody. So even though Mm. literature says... Yeah, as you get older, you underestimate time or um, whatever it may be. It, it's not the case for everybody. And perhaps it was because these um, participants were highly educated and engaging. In, but again, it, it's time estimation is a really interesting aspect. And I'd love to touch on it one day again in the future. Yeah, no, look, um, yeah. at some stage, sadly, when we have more time, yes. it'd be good to talk mm. about this again, because I think it, it, is, it is really interesting. And it's, and it's interesting to work out what measures and checks we put in place to determine when our own cognition is declining to a point where we need to seek assistance. Mm -hmm. And I think the health system really, and this is more about mental health and so forth and where we put our money, but we really need to develop these sort of diagnostic tools so that we, you know, as individuals know when it's time to go to the doctor. And I know when to go when I've got abdominal pain, Mm -hmm. but I don't know, Mm. you know, when the main thing in my body, my brain is starting to have trouble, I don't know when to seek assistance. So. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, Dina, great having you back. Thanks so much for coming back again. I'm glad you enjoyed the 20 and 20 last year, and it's good to talk to you for a few more minutes this yeah, time. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Dina Bate is from the Department of Psychology and Counseling in the College of Science, Health and Engineering at La Trobe University. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app.
Dr. Ewan has been, uh, well, I guess, very disturbed over the summer, as we all have, with regards to the incredible number of bushfires and their intensity. What's going on, Bill? Yeah, absolutely. And I guess, first of all, I would like to say, yeah, hearts go out to anyone who's been personally affected by the fires. Um, of course, there's been huge impact on wildlife, but there's been massive impacts mm. on people and also a huge thanks to our firefighters. Those yeah. people are just absolute legends and heroes. So, mm. yes, thank you so much to all those people. So, yes, I think you'd have to be living under a rock to not know about the fires that have been happening. And I also just want to point out, too, that I think they've been recently coined uh, the Black Summer, these fires did not start in summer. No, they so did not. They, well, started in, summer. they started in winter. Yeah, which August? is was it Yeah, August? All, all, around August, August yeah. in southeast Queensland <clears throat> and northern New South Wales in areas of actual rainforest. Mm-hmm. So that probably tells you part of the story that we're seeing things that I think probably are fair to say are unprecedented in the sense that we're seeing, you know, areas of habitat that shouldn't burn. So rainforests are typically wet, mm-hmm. moist and so forth. Yeah. Because of the drought, because of extreme temperatures, which have been linked with climate change and increasing temperatures, we're seeing areas of habitat that have dried out quite substantially and then rainforests burn. Mm. So, And those rainforests in, in northern New South Wales and southeast Queensland are the largest remaining subtropical rainforest in the world. So they, they, they are around from the uh, Mesozoic era. Um, so pretty substantial habitats. And when rainforests burn, typically they don't recover very well mm. um, right. because they don't have the same adaptations <laughs> that, say, eucalypt has. So when a gum tree burns, quite often, they'll sprout from the bark or they'll sprout from what's called a lignotuber under the ground. Mm. Um, I'm sure many of you have driven around parts of Victoria that were heavily affected by Black Saturday and seen the recovery. Mm. It takes time, Mm. but plants can recover. So these fires have been substantial um, in a number of ways. So I think the last estimate I saw was roughly about or getting close to 11 million hectares, which is an area much bigger than South Korea, all of South Korea burning, or much bigger than Slovakia. Um, when I was in the US recently, I put it into numbers for them because it was Super Bowl. So it's about <laughs> 19 million American football fields. All right. Which I know is a silly number, but it's yeah, huge. You see, I, for me, you need to put in moons or something. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how big the moon is. How big is the moon? Well, I don't know offhand, but if you t- if you can work it out for me, that would <laughs> be helpful. Check it out. Pl- check what about Pluto's butts? Yeah. I mean, anyway, they're, they're substantial, and I think more importantly, it's that these fires have occurred actually all over Australia too. Yeah. So there's a bit of a misconception that the fires are just down the east coast. They're no, not. They're everywhere. Yeah. So Tasmania, uh, northern mm. Australia, South Australia, Western Australia, and they've also burnt in areas that are considered to be biodiversity hot spots. So Kangaroo Island has had substantial yeah, fires, yeah. Uh, which has put species like the Kangaroo Island Dunnart and the subspecies of the glossy black cockatoo there at, at risk of extinction. The Stirling Ranges in Western Australia, which is known to be a real biodiversity hotspot, particularly for plants and insects, has been heavily affected. I mentioned the rainforests, of course, already. Mm. East Gippsland, as we know, has been heavily affected in Victoria. There's many species down there that are only found in that region as well. So the fires have been quite devastating, both just in in terms of the size and the severity, but also that they've burned in areas where we know there's a lot of really important biodiversity. Um, So a whole range of species have been affected. um, And, of course, one of the things that we're worried about too is that um, will species recover? And there's, again, I think there's this kind of this idea that, you know, the Australian system is really resilient to fire. Mm. And, and that's partly true. So that, you know, species have evolved with fire. But the alpine ash, as an example, which is a plant species, it needs fire to germinate. So it drops its seeds after fire. But when the seedlings are young, sort of about 10 years or less, if you have another fire in those same areas, right. those plants die. <clears throat> right, and right. large yeah. areas where that species occur have now had two fires in that in that window mm. where yeah. basically you kill all the yeah. plants. And so what we're kind of seeing again also is that we're seeing previously resilient um, ecosystems, mm. habitat types, 
probably not being as resilient as we thought. And again, it's associated with climate change. Yeah. So we're seeing basically a new game, if you like, where, you know, fire is occurring at a, a more regular rate in yeah. a more extreme way um, that's putting even resilient species at mm. risk. So, so that, that's a real concern. So, so with regards to the species, I mean, one of the things that I've wanted to ask someone, and, and I'm hoping, you know, I'm sure you'll do my best. You'll do your best, um, is... So if we think of the ecosystem and all the different species in it as a yeah. whole and how inter, interconnected they are, when there is a fast-moving fire front, there is a massive differential between those species and their ability to Absolutely. get the hell out of the way. I mean, what does that mean in terms of the recovery of those environments? Because I can imagine... Yeah, it would create incredible imbalances in populations, yeah. whereas before there was balance. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, there's a number of facets to your question. Um, there was actually a fantastic conversation article written by my colleague Dale Nimmo about all the adaptations that animals have to fire. So, you know, wombats, they can get onto a burrow. Mm, so they sure. can actually survive yeah. a fire relatively well. Echidnas, interestingly, if the fire is not too severe, they burrow into the ground and go to sleep. Hmm. which is a really cool strategy because you basically reduce your physiological costs um, in yep. a time of stress and then you you get on with life after mm. fire. But mm. you're right that, that the fires essentially reset a lot of habitats almost to point zero in yeah. some cases. Um, but also what we're concerned about with the scale of these fires is that what happens after the fire. Right. And so if you've knocked out a whole bunch of species but also <coughs> the species that survive, so let's imagine feral deer or feral yep. horses um, in large areas of habitat, that are, have survived the fire somehow and are now actually grazing the remaining vegetation. So those unburnt right. patches are super valuable for biodiversity. Yep. So animals that manage to survive the fire have held on in probably smaller areas. They're now probably going to get hit quite hard by herbivores looking for food hmm. um, yep. and that may actually stymie recovery of some areas and compound the impact <laughs> of fire. Yeah, absolutely. So, so that was going to be my question. I mean, you're talking about the wiping out large mm. Um, parts of the, the population of various Australian animals. What about feral animals? So cats, foxes, rabbits. I mean, is, yep. is that a potential... I don't want to say a good news story that they've hit those or are they more likely to survive? No, you're spot on. So there's an interesting thing going on where obviously, yeah, large numbers of deer and, and, and feral cats and foxes, mm. they would have perished in the fires too, given mm. the size of these fires. Mm. Some of them will have escaped. And we know from research that in some cases, feral cats and foxes move into burnt areas very quickly mm. to try and take advantage of animals that no longer have a home to hide in anymore and hunting becomes more easy. But what, we, what we're also um, thinking about, and there's actually things uh, happening on the ground already, uh, and that's a, another thing I should say, is that um, although these fires have been awful, the response by both scientists and government have been fantastic. Mm. They've been really rapid and a lot of collegiality and people working together to try and think, okay, how can we make the best of this situation? And invasive species control, actually, there's a window opportunity here now. So Victoria has a huge problem. In fact, most of South Australia has a huge problem with feral deer. And they're usually really, really hard to deal with because they're in forests, they're hard to see, they're cryptic animals by nature. Oh, wow. But yeah. now you've got all these large areas that have opened up. We can actually go into areas and shoot them aerially um, because they're easy to see. Mm. So, yeah, some of these feral animals, we may actually be able to um, effectively target them in this window of opportunity where areas are more habitat, uh, sorry, more open, and also things like cats and foxes might also be looking for food because mm. they, you know, there's not a lot going around in some areas, so you might actually be able to target control of them in areas more uh, mm. effectively. But yeah, protecting those refuge areas mm. where feral animals um, are going to probably congregate in and look for their own opportunities, yeah, is a really important thing that we need to do. And, and how how effective will that be? You and I mean, one of the things that's interesting there is for, for that to be workable has to be on such yeah. as 
in such a big yeah. scale. But the fires have been on such a big scale. Presumably mm. those populations have been hit really hard. Yeah. Is this a sort of one, well, I wish it was a once-off opportunity. I suspect given what's happening around the world, it's not. But, you know, is this something where we, we could actually make a difference or are we just buying time? Yeah, look, it's, it's highly unlikely we're going to mm. obviously eradicate, you know, deer or foxes mm. or cats given that the distributions of those species is really wide and, and they can reproduce in really high numbers. But I think, again, the point is about being strategic, <laughs> that if we can protect some areas within those burnt zones that haven't burnt where native biodiversity is persisting, um, you know, after the fire, if we can protect those and allow those areas to recover, that means then animals, of, of course, native animals can then spread out and plants as well, um, can spread out from those areas. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, it's not a case that we're going to eradicate these pest animals, but we can absolutely dampen the effect that they would have mm-hmm. if we did nothing. Yeah. Um, and we probably can <clears throat> crunch their numbers quite substantially in some areas. So, you know, and th- that will really be a matter of, you know, in the case of deer, you know, how many can we actually get rid of over right. a large area? Because if you just take out, you know, a couple of hundred over yeah. 10,000 hectares, there's just no point, right? No that, point. that numbers will yeah. come straight back and they're, they're large animals. They move across a wide area. But I think there is genuine hope and, and also investment from government, both state and federally, to actually get on top of this issue quite substantially. Mm. And you're right about this is not going to be the only opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> With the, predictions, yeah. Yeah. the predictions for fire are not great. Um, you know, mm. th- there's potentially going to be worse on the horizon, you know, mm. in, in the near future if we don't. Do uh, we, I mean, there's a lot of controversial discussions at the moment. And I, I, to be honest, I just don't know enough about this yeah. to know which side to land on. Yeah. And I find the information being put out through the yeah. media is grossly unhelpful unha- oh, yeah. for the general population. <laughs> but not talking about reduction burns. Yeah. I mean, we have just had the largest reduction burn in the history yeah. of this mm. country <laughs> by, you know, not through any um, decisive, you know, means uh, that we've chosen. What will this mean in terms of the next sort of 10 years of of bushfire risk for Australia? Because presumably, you know, the fuel load in many of these areas has been extinguished complete, almost completely. Does that mean we have a bit of a window of opportunity to sort of do some smart things or? Not really. So, okay. so there's a lot of, there's a lot of <laughs> yeah. misinformation out there about hazard reduction burning mm. and how it makes people safer. In some cases it does, but in many cases it does not. Right. And many areas that, that burnt in these fires had hazard reduction burns. Mm. And so there's a huge amount of misinformation being spread about hazard reduction burning, you know, not, not enough being done and that's why yeah. these fires occurred and, and people saying these fires were caused due to arson. They weren't caused due to, you know, right, right. dry lightning yeah, strike yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. and high temperatures and, and dry habitat it's not arson. is, is yeah, the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I think what most fire experts have been arguing for is that, you know, there is a place for hazard reduction burning but really um, sort of targeted strategic, exactly, yeah, around yeah. properties, yep. not yep. this kind of broad br- um, brush approach which we had after Black Saturday fires where right. we had we shall burn 5% <laughs> of Victoria to make people safe. Now, right. That, and many of the areas that they burnt weren't in areas where people were living mm. because they couldn't meet their targets. Right, and so right, really right. all that meant mm. was that a lot of habitat was being burnt unnecessarily. Yep. And in actual fact, in some habitats, when you burn them, they become more fire prone. Mm. So they sprout at the base and you have more vegetation underneath, yep. which actually therefore is so was, also flammable. I was going to ask about that. If, I mean, right now, when you, when you see recovery in, in the next sort of 12 months, let's say, it is green shoots and it's, it's yep. nothing terribly dramatic. But... Within three, four, five, six years, these are trees. Mm. And when trees, especially when canopy catches fire, that's big, hot stuff. Yeah. So is that likely to become a bigger problem? Yeah, but, I mean, even the understory, so those, those yep. branches that sprout, they're flammable. And yeah. so, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of well established that, you know, an old forest, a wet forest, you know, is actually going to carry less fire than one that's been burnt regularly and mm. has a lot right. of understory in it. Yep. So, yeah, so, you know, there's this, yeah. as you're saying, there's a lot of misinformation out there, but there's also a lot of great information, again, if you go on the conversation and so yep. forth and read 
the the articles by a fire expert saying hazard reduction burning increasing it substantially is not the answer to make people safer. Mm. So mm. you really need to think strategically about that. But you know the underlying cause is what we need to be addressing yeah. about why these fires are eventuating in the first place and why mm. we're seeing extreme events. And well, I suppose the, the the hope there is that um, you know people across the world don't care about a few Pacific islands, but when iconic species like koalas and things are suddenly under threat, and a lot of it, people love visiting Australia, maybe there'll be more attention paid it, to this than it's yeah, a sad other reality, things. unfortunately. Yeah. That it's taken something as extreme as this to make get people's attention. Yeah. Well, we will keep talking about this, uh, no doubt, uh, for quite a while, I suspect. And as, I, as, I, as I said uh, late last year, one of the things that bothers me is usually on the last show of the year, I send out a cheerio to all the CFA and say, mm. you know, good luck for the summer. Unfortunately, it was about, as you say, three months too late, yeah. Yeah. Um, which is pretty disturbing that there was that kind of time frame. But, Absolute um, heroes, yeah. those people. Well, uh, I think people forget just how much they give up their entire lifestyle yeah. for, um, for mu- as it turns out, usually weeks, but months on end at this point, yeah. mm-hmm. they'd just be exhausted. So big thank you to all Good news story, though. Uh, New South Wales <laughs> is currently experiencing a lot of rain, so that yeah. should put mm. a real dampener on yeah. those fires that yeah. as are say, still we, around. What do we get? So. Fi- fire, flood, wind, smoke, <laughs> funnel web fibres. Hey. Hail, flood. Yeah, come to Australia. It's great, folks. (laughs) Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.